Welcome to the NDS Safer and Stronger podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Alan Huff, the Director of Purpose at Work, with a special presentation about clinical governance and its advantages in disability services. So the topic I'm focused on, is there a role or is there a place for clinical governance in disability service provision? Um, whenever I present on issues about quality and safeguarding, I always like to begin by saying that as a sector, we must do better. In honour of the people who have been who have died or who've been seriously harmed by poor quality service provision, we must do better. There are so many preventable deaths, so much preventable harm, we must do better as a sector. So my arguments tonight are threefold. When people start talking about the term clinical governance, that term has different meanings in different settings. And I think it's important that we clarify what we mean. So if the person is using the term as a shorthand descriptor for we need to govern for human rights, quality and safeguarding, I'm all there. Absolutely, we need to do that. And it is a role for the boards. If the person is using the term clinical governance to say, we need to bring in all the frameworks and systems and processes that apply in the health setting and apply them to the disability setting, that's where I'm cautious. And so when we are using the term clinical governance, it's important to clarify what we mean. So my second argument is that clinical governance is indeed a subset of corporate governance and of governing for quality and safeguarding in particular. And my third argument is what a provider or as a board member from a provider, you can take from clinical governance practices in part depends on the services you provide and the characteristics of the people you support. So my main concern about um, adoption of the term clinical governance as it's used in say a healthcare setting is that we can make our organizations more and more complex adding to the, the policy framework, adding to the paperwork burden. And what we can do if we do that is we create an illusion of control, but not actually influence what's happening for the people we're supporting or the people supporting them. So let's go to that question of what do we mean by clinical governance? And I do stress that there are various definitions that are used um, and sometimes those definitions are not fully consistent. The definition which is most commonly applied or discussed is that of the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. And they described it as an integrated component of corporate governance. So that's my second argument. It is indeed an integrated component of corporate governance. It's not something separate to corporate governance for health services, but they say it's for health service organisations. It ensures that everyone from frontline clinicians to managers to members of governing bodies such as boards is accountable to patients and the community for ensuring the delivery of safe, effective and high quality services. Now, again, nobody would argue that we do not want services that are safe, they're effective and of high quality. 
and clinical governance systems provide confidence to the community and to healthcare organisations that systems are in place to deliver safe and high quality healthcare. So in some ways, good stuff, but don't forget that this definition is in relation to health services. The Health uh, Commission applies this model uh, as elements, uh, describes clinical governance using this model, the elements of clinical governance. And so you have starting at the top with governance, leadership and culture. And I've got to say, it's a very good thing that they focus on issues of governance, leadership and culture. Moving around, patient safety and quality improvement systems. The third element, clinical performance and effectiveness. The fourth element, safe environment for the delivery of care with partnering with consumers at the very heart of the clinical governance process. We should note though that these elements are largely covered in the NDIS quality and safeguarding framework already. So for example, in relation to governance, leadership and culture, or at least governance and culture, they're captured in the governance and operational management standard under the core module. And I could go around each of those five elements and say they are indeed already covered in the NDIS quality and safeguarding um, framework. What's good in the clinical governance frameworks that maybe we can borrow from? Well, the first thing is I like the fact that it's quite simple, five elements, though I think the simplicity could be a little bit misleading. Um, but you compare the simplicity of those five elements to the mind boggling complexity of the NDIS quality and safeguarding framework. Um, simplicity um, is a winner in my view. I like that it's truly person-centered, including notions of partnership. They place the uh, consumer at the very center of their framework. It acknowledges quite explicitly the, lead, the need for leadership. Interestingly, when I searched the NDIS practice standards, the word leadership doesn't actually appear anywhere in those standards or in the quality um, uh, indicators. It's implied, but it's not explicit. I think some of the details are quite useful. They are credentialing um, to ensure that people indeed do hold the qualifications they purport to hold. I recently saw um, a conference, uh, online conference in relation to quality and safeguarding in aged care. And they had a presentation by somebody from overseas who talked about an outbreak in a uh, remote facility in his country. And they had a picture of the team who had been specially recruited to support people. It turned out one of those people was well known as fr a fraud and didn't indeed have the qualifications she purported to have. So there is a role for credentialing. It is recognised in the NDIS practice standards, but I think um, the clinical governance framework really highlights the issue. It also highlights the issue of scope of practice. Are you indeed competent to deliver the service that your organisation is offering, that your workers are offering? So for example, um, if you employ therapists and occupational therapists, they may be really skilled in relation to one set of issues, but not another set of issues. Or they may have a lot of uh, competence in relation to working with adults, 
but not with children in an early intervention setting. So I think that concept of scope of practice is quite useful as well. And the last thing on the list is professional development. It, the clinical governance framework really highlights professional development as an investment by uh, service providers. It's not just a cost, it is indeed a, an investment. So if your organisation, um, they're the things that I think are good in the clinical governance framework and the clinical governance concepts that we can learn from. Of course, some of the providers will also be providers of clinical aged care services, in which case you have to have a clinical governance framework under the aged uh, care quality standards. Or if you provide clinical mental health services, perhaps under contract by a state government department or one of the primary health networks, um, most of those contracts will have a requirement for clinical governance in them as well. So just continuing on about what's uh, good about clinical governance concepts. I think we can uh, adopt the concept that boards or at least board committees need to have a deeper look at some of the um, issues, uh, practices in the se sector. So it's things like, it would be good to give more attention to organisational progress in eliminating or minimising the use of restrictive practices. The clinical governance ideas also help us to uh, focus on health-related risks. And obviously the pandemic is uh, a major source of concern at the moment. But we know from the reports of the Queensland Public Advocate, the New South Wales Ombudsman, or the Victorian Disability Services Commissioner, uh, Commission, or more lately, the NDIS Commission, that there are common sources of preventable harm which can be uh, treated. So neglect in the form of failure to think about people's needs in relation to epilepsy or medication challenges, swallowing and choking risks, um, even constipation. As a lay person, I never knew that constipation uh, can kill or the uh, severe constipation can set up circumstances that kill. The Royal Commission in its interim report has um, highlighted the issue, issues in relation to nutrition, including in group homes and dental care. If your organisation is supporting a, a client cohort which is ageing, then there's all the health risks in relation to ageing, which could be added to that list. What would I be cautious about in adopting some of the clinical governance concepts? Well, those five elements may appear simple, but in fact, there's a whole lot of complexity which sits behind them. And already, if you go to your quality and safeguarding management system, even in a small organisation, it'll be hundreds of pages long. And if you're working in a larger organisation, I bet you anything, it's thousands of pages long. Do we need yet more frameworks added to that? Or do we simply need to adapt the existing uh, frameworks to make sure that they are capturing these uh, risks? So one of the first reason why I'm cautious about clinical governance concepts is uh, the need to avoid unnecessary complexity. A second reason is that we need to avoid remedicalizing disability support 
except when we're talking about medical issues in relation to disability. One of the achievements of the social model of disability, which can't be lost, is that it has focused on the needs of people more than on the underlying health condition. And if we import concepts from healthcare, we need to be a little bit cautious about how much we import. And finally, I'd highlight the issue of scope creep where everything becomes clinical. And this was driven home to me in a presentation I saw by the Aged Care Quality Commission, where they're talking about clinical governance. And then they gave an example about Meals on Wheels and the delivery of meals at home. And suddenly they were talking about that as being clinical support and subject to clinical governance. So there was uh, clear evidence of scope creep going on. Here, it's important to note that many, many providers do not offer clinical services. So many of the organisations joining to this presentation tonight will not offer clinical services at all. And it's also important to know that the NDIS quality and safeguarding framework does not mention the words clinical uh, governance framework, uh, does not require a clinical governance framework, and indeed does not even mention that term in those standards. But I really do believe that many of the good points about clinical governance frameworks are already covered in uh, corporate governance uh, systems. And so if we think of clinical governance as a subset of corporate governance, it's really a subset of governing for quality and safeguarding. And obviously, I'm absolutely passionate about the need for boards to balance their concerns with strategy or with finance or with staff with issues about quality and safeguarding for the people they're supporting. That is the core purpose of your organisation after all. So clinical governance, if it is appropriate in your organisation, is a subset of the governance of quality and safeguarding in my view. So should your organisation embrace clinical governance concepts? And so the answer I've come up with is, well, it depends on your services. If you're providing clinical services, such as those provided by allied health professionals, yes, I think there is a case. There is definitely a case if you're providing any of the services under the specialist modules, or the, at least modules one through to four uh, under the NDIS practice standards, to do a deeper dive into those areas as a governing body and ensure that high quality and safe support is being delivered. It also depends on the characteristics of the people you support. So um, I would especially highlight here the fact that people who depend on the provider for their health coordination, um, absolutely uh, those providers need to be giving some attention to health related needs whether they call that clinical governance or not, I'm not really fussed, but there is absolutely a need to pay more attention to health-related needs. And incidentally, this is a major area of neglect in the practice standards. They really haven't uh, in sufficient detail thought about those people who depend on the provider for health coordination. And 
the experience of cell providers tends to be that they're the, the, the defense of last resort. If, if NDIA fails to adequately address the issue, if the health system adequately fails, if the coordinator of support fails, then it all depends back, falls back on the SIL provider. And uh, as I've already mentioned, I would highlight those providers who are supporting a cohort of clients who are aging because their health needs tend to escalate very rapidly and um, often they're quite complex to solve. Thank you for listening. Search NDS Safer and Stronger on YouTube for more experiences from disability providers as well as other useful resources or visit the Coronavirus Hub Victorian Response section at nds.org.au. The Safer and Stronger project focuses on supporting disability services in response to COVID-19.